Uh, and it's really great to be back with you. As Steve said, this is my third visit. I feel so privileged to be invited back. Uh, apparently, at the second visit, I said that means either I did a very good job the first time or I did a terrible job the first time, and you wanted to give me another go. So I, I think the third time uh, has a very special significance. In Judaism, if you do things, if you do something three times, it becomes your obligation. So I'm now obligated to join this community, I guess. That's, that's what it means. Can I say to, I think it's Zoe and Ian, you're going back to New Zealand to Christchurch? There's a lovely little Jewish community in Christchurch. If you want to get in touch with them, we'll do an exchange. I'll come here and you go to the Jewish community in Christchurch. I've been invited uh, today to talk about uh, the kingdom of God, uh, the idea of the kingdom of God in Judaism. Uh, the Hebrew expression that we normally use is malchut shamayim, which literally means the kingdom of heaven, but it, it is referring to God there. But the funny thing is you won't find that expression in the, in the Hebrew Bible at all. The Hebrew Bible is absolutely chocker block with this notion that God is the king above the kings of kings. Melech malchei hamlachim. You know, in, in Babylonia and Mesopotamia, the, the great king was always called the king above kings because he had a lot of uh, nobles who also considered themselves kings, but he was the great king. So in Jewish tradition, we call God the king above the king above kings, the greatest of them all. But there's just nothing in there, though it's, it's, it's filled with talk about God as king, there's nothing in there about the kingdom of God. That's a, an idea that grows up in later Judaism, what we call rabbinic Judaism, just as it grew up in Christianity. In fact, I think there's a lot more in Christianity about the kingdom of God than there is in Judaism. Most Jewish people never really conceptualize that. We use the term all the time. We talk about God as king all the time, but we don't conceptualize it. We don't theologize about it. And I think most of that's been done in Christianity, and that's really interesting to me. Because we don't think about it, we do it. We don't talk about it, we just do it. For example, every time I utter a blessing for anything, whether I eat an apple or... Uh, uh, see someone of great learning or observe a rainbow in the sky. Those are, those are common things, but they're also less common things that I do, lighting the, the candles for the Sabbath, welcoming a new festival in the Jewish year. Whenever we do these things, uh, we have a blessing we can recite. The blessing is related to each of these different things. That's like the essence of Jewish life. The uh, rabbinic tradition tells us that we should aim to utter a hundred blessings a day. So, and it's not just thinking, oh, gee, that's holy. You know, the term holiness comes into this quite a lot. Uh, that's special. It's actually a formula that we recite. And the formula that begins every one of these different blessings is 
Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, eternal our God, King of the universe. So there's that idea of king, of kingship, right there, an essential part of words that Jews say, ideally, a hundred times a day. Very few Jews would say that many blessings in a day, but some, some aim to do that. If you're, if, you know, if you spend all your time saying blessings like that, then your whole day becomes a blessing. You know, there's no time to think of anything else. You're just thinking blessing all the time. An extraordinary goal to, to, to reach towards. Very few of us can achieve that. But as it is, um, every time we say a blessing for anything, there's the kingship of God. So if you came into a synagogue, you would hear dozens of blessings being recited through a normal service. That's what the service consists of, basically prayers, blessings. And over and over again, the people in the service would be saying, would be speaking of God as king, and yet if you went up to any one of them at the end of the service and said, so what did, what did that mean to you? What did that say to you, you know, God as king? Gee, I don't know. Those are the words, you know. You just say them. Uh, but then it's what we do with them that really matters, I guess. That, uh, that metaphor of God being a king, and it's only a metaphor, of course, because we can't really use language like that of, of God. But as a metaphor, it's really, really difficult. I mean, my guess is that everyone in this room, that no one in this room, I'll put it that way, that no one in this room would like the kind of king that used to govern people in the, in the days when that metaphor came into being. Because the, the king was an autocrat, a tyrant. His authority was absolute, it was absolute, it was always a he back then, and his authority was always absolute, and you had no will at all. How many people here would like to live under such a, uh, such a ruler? Of course, there are people in the world today who live under such rulers, but we are so, so fortunate in not having that. So even the monarchists among us don't want that kind of king. We want a constitutional monarch, a king who is governed by the law. And that's not what a king traditionally was. The king was the law. But this, uh, and most of us, of course, are Republicans. We, we don't want a king at all. I, I uh, spent many, many decades in... Uh, in England, uh, in fact, my wife gave birth in the same hospital that uh, Diana gave birth uh, to, to Prince Harry and Prince William. And, uh, uh, and we, know the, you know, we know about the Queen, and I've experienced the Queen a lot, though I'm American by birth. I, I, I have a lot of respect for certain members of the royal family, not all of them. Um, and... Uh, and I like them a lot, but I certainly don't see them as being king or queen over me. Yeah? Yeah. And I'm British, too. And I still don't see it. So there you go. So the real, the real insight into what kingship is about in the Bible 
comes in the Exodus story. That's when, we, that's when the idea really is introduced to us. Up till then, God is uh, more advisor, friend, discussant, correspondent with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families. But when you get into the Exodus story, you have the people of Israel created, and they are serving not God, but Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, by the way, is an Egyptian term meaning that a king. It's not a name. It's a title. So they're serving a king, but it's not the, the king whom we know as God. And the whole of the Exodus story is about how they stop being servants of Pharaoh and become servants to God. That's the key story from a Jewish perspective that dominates all of our life. From a Jewish perspective, we don't need any other story. That is the story. So kingship somehow is bound up with freedom. Freedom from human authority and human determination. Now, we all, we all live in societies, so there are always human authorities. But as it says in Psalm 118, don't put your trust in princes. And what they mean there is that we should be loyal citizens, but we shouldn't believe that some other human being is going to be able to determine what we should do and determine it correctly. And no other human being can be trusted always to be doing what's right. We're all given free will, and we all have the ability to make choices about what to do. <clears throat> so it says here in your draft statement on uh, refugees and asylum seekers, every time I come here, there seems to be a draft statement about something, uh, which I'm very pleased to see. It says, we seek to participate in bringing the kingdom of God to earth through practices of inclusion, justice, fairness, and hospitality. And I couldn't have said it better myself as a rabbi, as a Jew. This is exactly what we would say. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about inclusion, justice, fairness, hospitality, and a lot of other things besides. Now, uh, there's, an interesting, uh, there's an interesting line in the Exodus story in the Bible. You know, the, when the Jewish people come across the sea, you know, God divides the sea for them, or an east wind divides the sea, and then, then the sea comes back, and Pharaoh's forces are drowned, which is never celebrated in Judaism. Never celebrated. No, Moses didn't do it. God did it. If you think Moses did it, you got the wrong end of the story. That's very important. But then God is blameworthy in this somehow, because God had to kill in order to save. And nobody, nobody, I'm sure, in this room feels comfortable with that. But that's a fact of life, and it's something we all have to grapple with. That's why we're given free will, free moral will, to grapple with that. So there's a lovely story in Judaism, a midrash, what we call a legend, where it says that when, uh, when this happened, the angels started cheering in heaven 
you know, yay for God. And God said, silence. I will not have you celebrating while my creatures are drowning. Now, there's the essence of that dilemma, the dilemma of freedom. Nelson Mandela, of course, started life as a terrorist, political life, as a terrorist, before he became the person we celebrate today. This is a problem. This is not something we just should take for granted. We should think about it and really dwell on it. And in dwelling on that kind of question, we actually bring the kingdom of God into our lives. That's the key. Never to simply accept that sort of thing, but to question it, to reflect on it. And by the way, not to be too judgmental either in the process. Anyway, so at the, after this happens, the Moses and the children of Israel sing a song. Do you remember that? And Miriam, too, Moses' sister. They're, some people think it's the women who began the celebration, not the men. But in any case, they sing a song. It's called in, in, in the Hebrew tradition, Shirat Yam, the song of the sea. And in that song, the culminating line is, Adonai yimloch le'olam va'ed, God will reign forever and ever. That's the picture of God as a king, a warrior king at that. Ish milchama. God is a man of battle, a man of war. And he will reign forever and ever. So one very clever rabbi noted that the verbal tense is not in the present. It's in the, the future. God will reign forever and ever. Now, of course, according to biblical grammar, that doesn't matter a lot, but he used that to hang an interpretation of the text. He said, God isn't yet king. God will only be king when we enthrone him. In other words, the weight of this, the responsibility is on us, not on God. Now, that puts it in an entirely different light. It means that God isn't going to fight our battles for us. On the contrary, or in, in verse, we have to fight God's battles. We have to do what's right so that ultimately God's name will be praised throughout the world. And I say this as a Jew speaking to a Christian audience because I don't think we're different on this. I think we're saying the same thing. Our mythos, our foundation stories, the narratives that drive this, this vision may be slightly different. For example, the, Jesus, the figure of Jesus doesn't come into my story at all. The, the figure of Jesus is central to your story, as I heard this morning. But that's not what's at issue here. What's at issue is how do we make the kind of world that God expects us to make? So I don't care whether the Messiah who eventually comes will turn out to be Jesus or somebody else. I couldn't care less. It can be Maitreya Buddha for all I care. What I do care about is the kind of world we create, you and I create together, 
you more than me, or most of you are much younger than me. But the world that we can create that will enable a Messiah to come. That's very much the Jewish view. The Messiah doesn't make perfection. The Messiah doesn't create justice. We do that work. Then the Messiah comes. So the Messiah is a symbol, if you like, of the work that we do in perfecting the world. Can we make a perfect world? No. So I don't have to worry about the Messiah coming. The Messiah is not going to come in my day. It's not going to come in my children's day or my grandchild's day. So we have a lot of work to do. And we have a long time in which to do it. Uh, the uh, one way, Jewish way of putting this is that we are partners with God. That's an amazing idea, that we are partners with God. We're not expecting God to do it. This is not by grace. I hope I can say that here. This is not by grace. This is it's not, not by works either. It's just the way it is. It's just the, what it means to be a human being. We are partners with God. That's our role. Uh, that's why we're created. And we need to make the kind of world that God set out to create when God created the world. But you see, God put people in it. And God must have known the problems he was creating when he put people in his world. And not just angels or whatever. Okay. Now, Steve mentioned that in, in, in contemporary Judaism, we have a particular way of looking at this partnership. We use a Hebrew expression, which he very valiantly attempted to share with you. Didn't quite succeed, but he came awfully close. Came awfully close. It's called tikkun olam. And uh, because that's such an important expression today, I'd like you to, to repeat that back to me. Tikkun olam. Now, they could say it. I don't know why you had problems with it. No, that was, that was really good, really good. This is a very interesting idea, so I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes talking about it. The, what the expression means literally is mending or repairing the world. And obviously, there's an assumption in this that the world is broken and needs mending. This idea is not just a modern idea. It goes way back in Jewish sources. Again, it's not in the Bible, but it is in what the rabbis wrote after the period of the Bible. So it's in the Mishnah and the Talmud, if you've heard of those, of those classic rabbinic texts. Anyway, but there it's used in a very technical, legal kind of sense. Its real development occurs in Jewish mysticism. Have any of you heard of Kabbalah? That's because you've heard of Madonna. Yeah, I understand. Okay. Thank, I always say, thank heaven for Madonna. Uh, I say a blessing for Madonna because she has enabled everybody to know the word Kabbalah, and then I don't have to explain it every time I get up here. Kabbalah is a very, very deep system of religious mysticism. It's Jewish, but there's also a Christian Kabbalah that comes from the Middle Ages because Christian scholars would study Jewish sources with rabbis sometimes. We either had a very close relationship or we had a relationship that you don't want to describe. In any case, in Kabbalah, in about the 15th, 16th century, 
in a town in Israel called Safed, or Tzfat, there was a teacher called the Ari, the lion. So, so, okay. <laughs> so in, uh, in Safed, in the 15th century, this man Ari, 16th century, came up with the notion that the world is uh, a place that somehow is broken. Now, that began when God created the world. So I'm going to give you a very brief Kabbalistic understanding of creation. And here's how it goes. When God decided to create the world, there was no space for the world because everything was God. So what God did was to voluntarily withdraw himself from a space. And in that space, the world could be created because it was empty of God. God then took light and put it into vessels with which to imbue that space with life. But the light, being divine, was too powerful for the vessels. So they shattered. And bits of light went out everywhere in this, this empty space. That empty space became our world. The bits of pottery, the shards, became matter. And the bits of light was the shattered divine essence which exists in the world. So the, rule, the, the role, from a Kabbalistic point of view, the role of people is to gather together the bits of light to restore the wholeness of God. You see how we're partners with God in this. God can't do this. We must do this. So in repairing the world, we actually restore the wholeness of God. That's the Kabbalistic understanding. Now, that's been changed slightly in modern days to make it more amenable to people. But basically, it's the same idea that when we do things to help repair the brokenness of the world, we're actually restoring the wholeness of God. What kind of things might we do to repair the world? We might issue statements like this about refugees and asylum seekers. There's no people in the world more than the Jewish people who understand what it means to be a refugee. And it embarrasses me when members of my community would not agree with such a statement. But I'm pleased that members of my community do stand up and speak out about asylum seekers as well. What else can we do? Well, from a Jewish point of view, we lead a Jewish life. By uttering those blessings that I spoke of before, by announcing the kingship of God a hundred times a day 
I contribute to creating a wholeness in the world, to restoring a balance of justice in the world. And there are thousands of other things I can do as well to contribute to this. The last thing that I'm going to mention to you is another example of this. Why am I here at all? I don't mean why am I here in the world, that great metaphysical question. Uh, I've not, not worked that one out yet, and I don't think I ever will. No, why am I here right now on a Sunday morning speaking to you guys at Fitzroy North, sorry, 75 on Reed, uh, a Christian group? Why am I here? You know, there are a lot of people from the Jewish community who would not do this. They see no value in coming out and speaking to a group of people from a different religious tradition. Their feeling is, you do your thing, we'll do our thing, and as long as you don't harm us, and we promise not to harm you, then everything is fine. I don't agree with that. My and by the way, there are a lot of Christians, I'm discovering, who would not come into a synagogue. Again, they'd say, our thing is our thing, your thing is your thing, you get on with yours, I'll get on with mine, and everything will be fine. And I disagree with that. My feeling is that the only way in a multicultural society such as Australia today the only way that we can mend the brokenness of our society is to talk to one another, to meet one another, to engage with one another, ultimately to dialogue with one another. But dialogue comes further down because real dialogue means that we may disagree vehemently about some really important things. And yet somehow we learn how to do that without the song at the sea, without imagining God to be a warrior, without trying to kill one another. So this is a step in that direction. So what I'm doing right now, I see, is an act of tikkun olam. It's a little one. And I do it, believe me, with... No great hopes that this is going to change the world. But it might help you to see what a Jew is about a little bit better. And from my angle, it helps me to see what you're about a little bit better. I'm going to tell you frankly, it's strange to me to sit in a service where the name of Jesus keeps being mentioned over and over again. For a Jew, that's a really odd experience. And my teachers, I mean, going back hundreds of years, teach me not to do it. They tell me, don't go into churches. Don't engage theologically with Christians. Your experience is unique to the Jewish people. Their experience is unique to them. Never the twain should meet, ever. It's taken a lot for me to come to the stage where I can be here today. A lifetime, really. A lifetime 
of grappling with these issues. And if it helps Tikkun Olam even a little bit, even if it just helps Steve to pronounce the words better, then I'll feel very much validated. Thanks a lot for listening to me today.